see what's going on here. Today, God is calling all of us as his people to be a righteous remnant, just like Ruth and Boaz. In the era of the judges, it was a dark, dark era. All hope seemed to be gone. And yet, there on the horizon, there appeared a small glimmer of light. The king is coming. Praise God. He's coming. Oh, folks, you can hear the thunder rumbling right now. He's coming. And he's coming for you if you're part of the righteous remnant who's ready to meet him. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. On June 25th of this year, Pastor Anna Helgren led her Edina congregation in a recitation of the Sparkle Creed during their Sunday morning worship service. It goes like this. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So, beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. The Sparkle Creed was originally created in 2021 by Reverend Rachel Small Stokes, a pastor at the Emmanuel United Church of Christ in Louisville, Kentucky. Pastor Anna's Edina Church not only used this creed to celebrate Pride Sunday, but they also instructed their children to celebrate with them. During the children's sermon, the kids were, they were given props, dress-up clothes to help them join in the celebration. Their children were told that Jesus says, I love you just the way you are, and we like to celebrate that. And then the kids were instructed to have their picture taken by the rainbow flag after the service. Now, friends, this is what happens when a people no longer do what is right in God's eyes, but they intentionally choose to do what is right in their own eyes. The Bible puts it like this, Isaiah 5, 20 to 24, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty. Now this is exactly what was happening in the book of Judges. And by the end of the book, we see this growing wake of destruction that almost did the nation in. The true story is told in the last three chapters. It's the exclamation point at the end of the book. It's the final warning of what happens when everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. As the Bible says, Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from that Spirit will reap eternal life. In Judges 19, we see the same thing that we see in Romans chapter 1. We see a threefold descent into unprecedented chaos, which would have caused the permanent extinction of the nation of Israel had God not intervened. Step one in their descent into darkness was normalized sexual immorality. Verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this verse offers us an ominous opening to what will be a grisly chapter in God's word. A Levite is supposed to be a holy man. The Levites were the priestly tribe the men who were set apart for God. They were to represent God before the Israelite people. But this Levite was different, for he had taken a concubine, a second-class wife. Now, we're not told if this was his only wife, but even if it was, it defies God's purposes for marriage, which are given in Ephesians chapter 5, 23. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives. In most cases, the only reason someone would choose a concubine would be for sexual purposes. For the wealthy, it was also a status symbol. Only the wealthy could afford more than one wife. But when they did that, it was always, always, always a disaster. Virtually everyone in the Bible who took more than one wife paid a heavy price for doing so. And you can trace that from Abraham to Jacob to David to Solomon and on and on. Verse 2 tells us that the concubine was unfaithful to the Levite priest. And so she went back to her father's house. Now, everything in this whole chapter, it just seems off. Why the Levite took four months to go and find his concubine wife, well, that is not explained and neither is her father's bizarre behavior 
when he finally visits her father. For five days, the father entertains the Levite. Bible scholars point out that the Hebrew words eat, drink, and be merry imply carousing on the part of the men. Getting drunk, sleeping around, would have, that would have been typical behavior. Now the fact that the Levite and the concubine's father party for five straight days helps us to understand the Levite's behavior in offering his concubine to a gang of thugs in verse 25. For five straight days, the Levite has done the same thing. He and his father-in-law had drunken parties night after night after night. Such conduct would not have raised an eyebrow in Israel during that time. Even having a priest join in that revelry would not have struck anyone as unusual. This was normalized behavior. Is that not where America is at today? At least 90% of pornography could be shut down virtually overnight if we had the political will to do that. You see, it is obvious here that there is a master game plan. A plan to normalize virtually all sexual behavior and to minimize any attempt to retain some semblance of decency. It's also obvious that there is a master planner behind the master plan. And make no mistake about it, it's none other than Satan himself. Now we know that because the wicked men in verse 22 are actually called in the Hebrew, sons of Belial. That's the Hebrew word translated wicked. That's what it means. This is referring to the devil. The Apostle Paul uses this same word in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What harmony, Paul says, is there between Christ and Belial? Heartland family, if you want to if you want to roll out the red carpet for Satan to come into your life and afflict you, all you have to do is commit sexual sin. You realize that? It's an open invitation to Satan. You're basically saying, come on in, Satan. This is why the Bible warns us, Ephesians 5, verse 3, but among you, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of immorality or of greed, for these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but only thanksgiving. For of this you can be aware, no immoral, impure, or a greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. According to Romans 1.24 in the New Testament, open sexual immorality in a culture is the first step in the destruction of that culture. It says, Romans 1.24, therefore, 
God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's step one. It is closely followed by step two in the destruction of a culture. Step two is extensive homosexual immorality. After five days of partying, with their moral defenses down, the Levite and his servant and his concubine set out for home. It's late in the day. They make it only to Jerusalem, which was the Canaanite city of Jebus at that time. And because it was a Canaanite city, they presumed that it was more evil if it was a Canaanite city. So they pressed on to the Israelite city of Gibeah, and they arrive as the sun is setting. And they end up staying with an old man who takes them in. Verse 22 picks up the story. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men surround the house Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to our house so that we can know him, have sex with him. This language, ironically, virtually identical to what happens in Sodom in Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, you may recall, there were two angels disguised as men who enter the city of Sodom, they stay with Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. And verse 4, Genesis 19 says, Before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can know them have sex with them. Now the main difference between the two accounts is that all of the men surrounded the house in Sodom, but only some of the men, the sons of Belial, surround the house in Gibeah. In both accounts, the host of the home defends their guest, but, unbelievably, they instead offer two women to the mob. In fact, Lot, Lot offers his own virgin daughters. And the host in Gibeah also offers his own virgin daughter, as well as the Levite's concubine. Unbelievable. Sodom seems to be completely depraved. Gibeah is only partly depraved. Homosexual conduct, after all, it is still called vile. It's still called disgraceful in verses 23 and 24. And yet it is clear that Gibeah is well on its way to becoming another Sodom. So is America today. 
And that's the heartbreaking thing. It wasn't that way 20 years ago. When approval of gay marriage 20 years ago was about 40%. And if you go back 30 years ago when I came to Annandale here, it was 27%. Okay? Today, as we prepare, prepare for the 2024 elections, it's hard to believe that in 2004, in those elections, 20 years ago, 13 states approved constitutional amendments recognizing marriage as between a man and a woman. And eventually, that number would grow to 31 states. In fact, I don't believe they ever lost an election until Minnesota in 2012. Now, I love the way the ballot in Michigan read. Quote, to secure and preserve the benefits of marriage for our society and for future generations of children, the union of one man and one woman in marriage shall be the only agreement recognized as a marriage, unquote. That was the ballot in Michigan. That ballot had to be written by godly people. Do you know that 59% of voters in Michigan approved that? 59%. That was the lowest of the 13 states who voted in 2004. In Mississippi, 86%, seven out of eight, voted for man-woman marriage. In, Min in North Dakota, 73% voted for man-woman marriage. God bless North Dakota. Today, as we all know, the polls have flipped in a stunning reversal. The Gallup poll reports 70% approval of gay marriage in 2021. Folks, we are way beyond where Gibeah was in Judges 19. We are well on our way to be where Sodom was in Genesis 19. But really, none of this should be surprising to us. Because once one moral boundary is crossed, another is soon to follow. That is exactly what the Bible prophesies in Romans chapter 1. Verse 26 of Romans 1 says, Because of this, because the people openly degraded themselves with sexual immorality, then God gave them over to shameful lusts, and even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You know what, folks? God doesn't mince words, right? He just lays it out there black and white. Ten books of the Bible teach on homosexual behavior. You realize that? There is not a single positive reference to homosexual behavior in the entire Bible. There's no doubt about it, about that one. 
Now, step two in the decline of a culture is extensive homosexual immorality. And once that is entrenched in the culture, then step three is sure to follow. And step three is mass insanity. You see glimpses of insanity throughout Judges 19. But it comes to a head when the wicked men of Gibeah continued to clamor for the Levite himself to come forward and surrender to them. Verse 25 picks up the story. But the men would not listen to him. They wouldn't listen to the old man who was hosting them. So the man, that's the Levite, he took his concubine and sent her outside to them, which is just unbelievable. The Levite is rapidly demonstrating he's not only wicked, he's also a coward. He gives up his wife to the mob, and then he goes to bed. Can you believe it? Meanwhile, verse 25 tells us they raped her and abused her throughout the night and at dawn they let her go. Meanwhile, he's sleeping. The poor woman staggers back, collapses at the front door. In the morning, the Levite wakes up, gets himself ready to go, and then trips over her on the way out the door and he callously orders her, get up, let's go. The cruelty of this man now borders on insanity. You would not treat your animals like that. Is he even in his right mind? How could anyone be so indifferent to any human being, let alone your wife? Worse yet, verse 29 says, when he reached home, he took a knife and he cut up his concubine limb by limb, we're assuming she was dead by that time, cut her up limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. You see, at this point, Israel is not only descending into anarchy, Israel is descending into insanity. And make no mistake about it, we in America are right there with them, right? And folks, it's not just in the cities, (laughs) which we often say, well, that's in the cities. No. It's fast coming out here to rural Minnesota. We all see that. Two years ago, nearby Buffalo, the school district paid $218,500 to a transgender student who was upset by the bathroom policy at the middle school. The student went by the name of Matt Woods. Woods was born a girl but claimed to be a boy. I actually have that backward in your notes. I'm sorry about that. The school rightfully would not allow Woods to use the boys' bathroom, so Woods sued and won. 
It was ruled that the school district denied Woods constitutional right, rights in spite of the fact that there are a lot of other kids who have constitutional rights. Not only is Buffalo out the 200 grand, they were also required to allow transgender kids to use whatever restrooms they wish and to play on whatever sports teams they choose and to use whatever shower rooms they want to. On top of that, Buffalo schools were ordered to use whatever names and pronouns the student chooses. Friends, we know it's not stopping there. Last year in Becker, in Becker, my son-in-law is from Becker. Last year in Becker, more than 100 protesters showed up at the high school there, chanting messages supporting the gay and transgender community and turning their backs on the Child Protection League who are doing a wonderful job going to different schools and tr trying to present the fact that this, <laughs> all of this woke agenda does not protect the kids, it harms the kids. But they shouted them down. Friends, we need to follow the science on this one. Sex reassignment surgery does not work. Dr. Ryan Anderson, who's an Ivy Leaguer, he's a Princeton grad, he has the evidence in his book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Movement. Anderson cites a 30-year study in Sweden showing that the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of their peers. Doesn't work. Dr. Paul McHugh, professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, says, quote, transgendered men do not become women, they become feminized men. And, he said, transgendered women do not become men, they become masculine-looking women. What we're seeing all around us is insanity. Romans 128 describes stage three in, in, in our cultural destruction like this. It says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. They, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. And we are watching this. We're watching our culture descend into this mass insanity. And all of us are supposed to naively be okay with it. Just go with the flow. Don't ask any questions. Pretend it's all okay. Amazon won't even carry Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally. You know, the left always says that they want to have a conversation, but they only want to have a one-way conversation. 
Now, thank God, there is a growing movement across our land that are pushing back against the madness. Even in the mainline denominations, the the Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopals, even in those mainline denominations, there is a conservative element that are pushing back. They're doing it through vehicles like Touchstone Magazine, which says on the cover page of their website, here we do not concede one square millimeter of territory to falsehood, folly, contemporary sentimentality, or fashion. We speak the truth and let God be our judge. Reverend John Bunger of the Reformed Episcopal Church, he mourns over what has happened to his mainline churches and his liberal comrades. Like the Sprinkle Creed, he claims his mainline friends have bought into, they have sold their souls to a similar creed, which goes like this. I believe in man almighty, not God almighty. I believe in man almighty, measurer of heaven and earth. I believe in the self, my only Lord, conceived by choice, led by my passions. I was educated, inebriated, used, and disposed of. I descended to despair, questioning all dogma. And yet I sit in judgment over the politically incorrect, whom the state should silence, whether quick or dead. I I believe in the primal spirit, the pagan androgynous church, the communion of the tolerant, the absence of sin, the worship of the body, and the lie, L-I-E, everlasting. Amen. He said, that's what's really going on. Reverend John says this, he says, Long before the sound of this creed has died away, those with eyes to see will discern the silhouette of the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming back in glory. Instead, Pastor John says, let us confess the real creed, the Apostles' Creed, which has stood the test of time. And uh, this creed is uh, maybe a little hard for you to see, but uh, if you can make out the words, you can say this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Sounds better, doesn't it?
I close with this. Just like today, during the era of the judges, there existed a righteous remnant who stayed true to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now here's the good news. There was, there was good news going on. We, we know that this righteous remnant existed because the book of Ruth begins with these words in the days when the judges ruled. When Sue and I got married 41 years ago, we chose as our wedding verses Ruth 1, 16 and 17. In these verses, Ruth takes a solemn vow of loyalty and it goes like this, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Are those beautiful verses? You see, Ruth is a widow at the time. And she says these words to her mother-in-law who returns to her native town of Bethlehem. And it is there in Bethlehem that Ruth meets Boaz and falls in love. Boaz is a godly man and he treats Ruth with purity and kindness and respect and dignity. That, folks is how a wife should be treated. Think about this. Bethlehem is the same hometown of the concubine in Judges chapter 19, okay? Bethlehem is where the Levite partied with his father-in-law for five straight days. But the book of Ruth paints a different picture of Bethlehem. So these things were going on, going on simultaneously. Boaz was a godly man. And he wasn't alone. Ruth chapter 4, Boaz took 10 of the elders of Bethlehem, 10 men of integrity, and he had them verify that his business dealings and his marriage to Ruth was proper and honorable and pleasing to God. Do you know what happened with Ruth and Boaz? Ruth chapter 4 verse 17 says they had a son and they named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David, the king of Israel. And David was the one of whom God said, he is a man after my own heart. So several generations after David, along came another baby who is also born in Bethlehem in the family line of David. You see what's going on here? Today, God is calling all of us as his people to be a righteous remnant just like Ruth and Boaz. 
In the era of the judges, it was a dark, dark era. All hope seemed to be gone. And yet, there on the horizon, there appeared a small glimmer of light. The king is coming. Praise God. He's coming. Oh, folks, you can hear the thunder rumbling right now. He's coming, and he's coming for you if you're part of the righteous remnant. Is that true of you? Who's ready to meet him. 